good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. And good morning to you. I'm Kathy Kayla, and this is indeed Discam Medical Monday. We are live this morning, so uh, make a note of the number to get in touch with me because I'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to send me a message on SMS, the number is 34519. If you'd like to send me a telegram, you can send me either a voice note or you can send me a text, and that number is 061-895-1019. You can tweet at CHAI-FM, C-H-A-I-F-M, or you can make a comment on our Facebook page, and I'll get that one too. And uh, CHAI-FM's Facebook page is 101.9 CHAI-FM, C-H-A-I. This morning, we're going to be talking about vaccinations. Now, 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 before you roll your eyes, I saw that vaccinations are darn interesting. And most of us have had Many. Did you know that there's more than one way that vaccinations are made? We're always told, well, you know what, a little bit of the disease, whether alive or dead, is put into your body and your body recognizes it and builds up this immunity. That's not true. There's a whole generation of vaccinations. In fact, I learned this when I was researching cancer. And the company that actually developed the Pfizer vaccine is a company called BioNTech. And what they do normally before the pandemic was they were developing did you know that there's no two cancers that are the same cancer is different in every single person and so this company biotech was actually developing mrna um, treatments cancer treatments for patients for their individual cancers isn't that just absolutely phenomenal and then they were one short step away from bringing in a vaccination well, they actually had to develop it still, but using the mRNA technology, they developed the Pfizer vaccine. At the time, they actually went to Pfizer and they said, here's a vaccine, and Pfizer said, no, 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 we're not ready for this. But that's what happened. It's, there's a very, very good documentary on it on uh, YouTube. Go and check it out. Anyhow, so we're going to be talking about vaccinations, and I've invited Dr. Lawrence to Blanche. He's a medical head of Sanofi Vaccines South Africa, and he joins us now. We're going to be talking about all different kinds of vaccinations, how different kinds of vaccinations meet uh, or how they are made. I want to also find out from him about, you know, why so many diseases are starting to make a resurgence. And then, of course, we're going to talk about the flu vaccine and you, you and the flu this winter, indeed. So welcome, Dr. Tablanche. How are you? Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. You live, you work in a very, very fascinating area, working with vaccines and, and developing medications. Just give us a little background about Sanofi. Um, so Sanofi vaccines, uh, you know, our, our credo is that we, we want to live in a world where no patient suffers or dies from a vaccine preventable disease. And for me, that's a, that's a slogan or a credo that, that is really something we we try and facilitate as far as we can so it's uh, i think with any person in any job it's easy to to you know be or feel overworked but when you have a, a credo or a goal that is uh, really helps patients or strives to help patients this is quite uh, quite a good motivator so for us 
it's like you said, it's exciting and we're lucky to work in a in an industry in an area where uh, working on scientific new ways of helping and pre uh, preventing disease and helping patients. It's something that is very close to our hearts and we feel lucky to be a part of. Absolutely amazing. So talking about vaccinations, can we just go through the different types of vaccinations? If you can just give me a kind of summary. So firstly, we have inactive vaccinations or inactive vaccines. What are those? So inactivated vaccines are essentially where we take an organism or an antigen, as we call it. So a specific, whether it's a virus or a bacteria, that organism that would normally infect your body. And this organism is essentially inactivated or killed. Um, this is then used in a vaccine to help train your body to recognize uh, this foreign organism but without the risk of actually being being infected by it. And this is a very important concept where we, we look at, for example, like the flu vaccine, which is also an inactivated vaccine. Um, this vaccine, even though it does contain parts or the original flu virus, because it's inactivated, it's actually impossible to contract flu from this vaccine. And it's a very important concept uh, to remember because uh, I'm sure you've heard as well, patients may say, for example, oh, I had the flu vaccine and I still got the flu or I got the flu from the vaccine. And um, although there are scenarios where we can explain why some somebody may experience certain symptoms from a vaccine, it wouldn't be the actual flu virus that they contracted from the vaccine, because in this case, it would be impossible. This doesn't mean that you cannot contract another respiratory tract infection that may have similar symptoms or may come across as flu. It's also important to make sure the timing of the flu vaccine is important. If we are already infected with the flu virus um, without knowing it, without the onset of symptoms, and then go for a flu vaccine immediately, that may be another scenario where flu symptoms true flu symptoms can be experienced or something similar, which can then be uh, misinterpreted or misattributed to the flu vaccine. Right. Yeah. Do, you th do you think that we've actually come to understand a bit more about vaccinations through COVID? So, yes, I think uh, COVID created an opportunity to really um, see what the healthcare sector and what the, the pharma industry is capable of in terms of as the need arises. To, to do everything that is possible to to accelerate essentially access to a vaccine. So, so in that way, one can try and look at a silver lining um, and see, okay, that uh, that this help facilitate access to certain technologies. As you mentioned, these technologies have already been around for quite long, and I think that's also why there needs to be less mistrust of certain not what seems to be novel vaccines. We might not be familiar with all of the technologies out there, but it's important to remember that some of these novel ways of uh, developing vaccines have actually been around for quite long. And therefore, it's not something that was rushed to the market or rushed for access. Um, it was just implemented when the, when the need really arose. And I think it's important to recognize and to see how when the world needed um, the healthcare sector and the pharma industry to step up that this uh, is really, we can see lots of different companies did rise to the occasion. I'm Kathy Kaler. This is Discam Medical Monday. If you want to get in touch with me, if you have any questions about vaccinations, about whether to have a flu vaccination this year, please get in touch with me. 34519 is the text line or 061-895-1019. 
My guest this morning is Dr. Lawrence Tablanche. He's the medical head at Sanofi Vaccines South Africa. Really, really a well, a highly esteemed guest this morning. So please get in touch if you've got any questions. This is the guy to ask and take advantage of the fact that he's that we've got access to him now because he's not somebody who you can just call up someone and say, when should I have my vaccination? I just had my COVID vaccination. So 34519 is the SMS line or 061-895-1019. Right now we're talking about the different types of vaccines. Did you know that there are different types? And I'm not talking about different types of vaccinations that that treat different types of diseases, but there are actually different types of actual vaccinations. So you've got live vaccinations, you've got um, inactive vaccinations. We're going to be talking about all the different types because if it's going in your body, know what's going in your body. Know, have, have some kind of knowledge about it so that you're not getting all your information from Facebook. Hashtag just saying. And uh, yeah. All right. So let's get on to, so I mentioned, so you, we were talking about the inactive vac- vaccines, right? So that would be treated, that would, you'd use that to treat hepatitis B, rabies, polio, and the flu vaccine, right? What about active vaccines? What does an active vaccine mean? That sounds very scary. So the term that we generally use to refer to when we're not talking about vaccines that are like an inactivated vaccine or a subunit vaccine. So let me maybe start there. A subunit vaccine would be it's a small section of an organism that can cause disease. So this not, as we previously spoke about, uh, an inactivated or a dead one, but now this is even a further breakdown. So a subunit or a component of the regional organism. So even less of a potential for that to necessarily cause the, the disease it's intended to protect against. But there are certain scenarios where to create a more optimal or an immune response that's protective for longer, the approach is to use a vaccine that we, we call live attenuated. So this means that the organism that's causing the disease is not necessarily killed, but it is weakened. That's what the attenuated part in this context means. So, And this is important because it allows your body then to recognize this organism without even if it is still alive, but it is weakened. So it means your body's immune system can much more easily overcome this uh, invading organism and then develop an immune response that will recognize this organism at a next opportunity and therefore protect you. It sounds like a lot of effort to go through to get a live attenuated vaccination. Why can't that also be an inactive vaccination? So the vaccine processing journey, as we can call it, um, is exceptionally complex. And you'll see often the production takes very long from the point where the start of the, the content of the vaccine is being manufactured to the point where it can actually be administered to a patient. This can often be very many months or even over a year time period. So the process is quite complicated to, um, to produce vaccines, regardless of which type of vaccine. But the reason we have different types of vaccine is because depending on the, the organism, certain types of vaccines have been demonstrated to create better immune responses. So what do I mean by a better immune response? This means the way your immune system reacts to that organism means it needs to allow your body to create antibodies. And that antibodies needs to be at a level where it is protective 
against that organism should your body come into contact with it again. We also want this response or this antibody levels to last for a certain period of time so that when you are exposed again down the line that you are protected again, that we don't need too high a frequency of, of vaccination. So depending on the type of organism, different types of vaccines show better efficacy in terms of how good the protection is in the acute setting, but also for how long it lasts. Okay. Another kind is messenger RNA, which the first time that we really heard about it as, you know, in the public domain is because of COVID. And, uh, and certain COVID vaccinations are made with using mRNA. What is mRNA? So mRNA or messenger RNA is essentially the component of genetic material of um, any cell organism that's used to decode that genetic material into different cellular components or, or proteins. So, so in a vaccine context, when we look at this type of vaccine, it's uh, a way in using the body's own cells or processes to use instead of taking a whole organism or taking just a section of the outside, for example, now we're taking the genetic material and in introducing that by the vaccine into the patient. And then that genetic material is then translated into a component that is or looks like the original uh, invading organism. And then again, it facilitates your, your body's immune system um, with an opportunity to recognize this foreign particle and then develop an antibody response to it. So when people are saying, you know what, we're putting vaccinations into our body. I mean, I have seen this on social media, which is why I don't get my news from social media, you know, that it's changing our genetics. Is that true? That's no, not true. So remember, you win, yeah, no vaccine has the capacity to change uh, a recipient's DNA. We are taking the organism's DNA and introducing that into our body to allow the, the, the what it's coding for to be produced essentially in your body. But then your immune system still recognizes and eventually destroys the products um, that is translated from this genetic material. Okay, and it's primarily used to treat COVID-19. That is, that's the vaccine that's been, it's, it, or are there other diseases that mRNA vaccinations can treat? So at this point, the focus is largely on, on uh, COVID vaccination with mRNA vaccines. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we are excited to see what the, what the future holds in terms of vaccination with uh, newer techniques. I'll tell you something, researching this, I feel like it's opened up a whole new world to me that I didn't even know was there. Can we just talk about um, subunit recomb recombinant polysaccharide and conjugate vaccines? What are those? It sounds very complicated. <laughs> So if we try and sim uh, try and simplify it a bit, uh, this is where we start talking about the breakdown. So if, when we look at a, a virus or a bacteria, then instead of using the whole organism t as part of the vaccine, um, we'll take a small section of it. So, for example, um, in flu, we will look at some of this what we call surface proteins and. So these are different methods essentially that we can uh, use in vaccination. So the surface protein would be recognized. So uh, your body would then inst instead of recognizing an entire organism, it 
it's sufficient to look at some of the surface proteins and then develop an immune response. So when it again comes into contact with something that looks like it's on the surface of that invading organism, then your antibody is already developed um, to create a response against that. When we look at, um, for example, conjugate vaccines, um, again, our goal with a vaccine is to um, create a type of vaccine that um, provides an immune response that is as effective or long lasting as it possibly could be. So what we, um, if, if we, for example, have an organism or an antigen that may not elicit a very strong immune response, what um, research has shown works kind of well is that it, if we combine that subunit to another type of subunit from another organism, then the piggyback effect of having a stronger immune system to the conjugated part means the stronger immune responses now kick or kicks into both both of those subunits. Sounds so complicated and a lot of work indeed. But uh, <laughs> let me just tell you that if, you, if you've had the Hib vaccination, if you've had hepatitis B, the HPV, that's human, what's it, uh, human papillovirus, I think that is, whooping cough, uh, pneumococcal disease, meningococcal disease, or shingles, if you've had vaccinations for either of those, you've had the subunit recombinant, all of that, yes, you've had this kind, the polysaccharide and conjugate vaccines. Uh, can we just talk very briefly about toxoid vaccinations? So this is, a, again, an, another way um, vaccine production um, has been explored and approached to. So uh, an example of a, a toxoid vaccine can, for example, be tetanus toxoid. So here we look at what the, how the original organism works or how it causes disease. And in the case of, for example, tetanus, um, the impact of the, that organism is because of the toxoid toxin or toxoid that it creates and how that affects your body. So by using that in a vaccine, it again helps teach your body how to recognize that toxin as a foreign body and then creates an opportunity to create an antibody or an immune system response to this in a more controlled setting versus when you are actually exposed to it. So all of this, all of this, they all work on more or less the same principle. And that is building a library. You know, if our immune system is a library, each pathogen is another book in that library. And as we get older, we develop a bigger and bigger library. Is that, would that be a simple analogy, Dr. Tavlanche? So I think the important thing to remember is, yes, when we, uh, as we are exposed to different, and I'm going to use the term deliberately antigens, because antigen refers to that, foreign body or foreign organism or a piece of it that your body recognizes foreign and therefore develops a response to. So as we are exposed to different antigens, your body is presented with this opportunity to, to build a response or almost like an immune repertoire to these things. But it is important to, to remember that every patient is different and all these different diseases on the backdrop of every patient being different, we do see different responses and therefore we are often faced with the need to repeat vaccination. So for example, immunity that is built or attained through a vaccine may not be everlasting, meaning there may need to be an opportunity to 
to boost your immunity against this. So from a, from a host or a patient perspective, that's one of the elements we need to take into account. But with something like flu, for example, we see a lot of changes in the flu virus. So from that point of view, again, repeat vaccination every year is very important because the strains of the flu virus that are out there are very smart in changing and modulating every year. So it's important to for us to recognize which strains or which new strains are around and circulating most prevalently and therefore include those in our next season's flu vaccination so that um, again, we optimize the chances of being protected against the circulating um, flu strains of that year. I'm Kathy Kayla, and this is the Diskem Medical Monday. My guest this week is Dr. Lawrence Tablanche. He's the medical head of Sanofi Vaccines. We are live this morning, and uh, what a beautiful but chilly morning in Joburg it is. You are welcome to send me a message. You can do that on SMS 34519. You can also send me a message or a voice note, if you like, on Telegram, if you have the app. And that number is 61 I want to talk to to, uh, Dr. Tablanche about why certain diseases that are preventable through vaccination are seeing a resurgence. That's coming up right after this. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Dischem, pharmacists who care. I'm Kathy Kayla. This is the Diskem Medical Monday. As you know, we have been doing this for 14 years. You know this is Diskem Medical Monday. I am live this morning, so if you've got any questions, send them through on 34519. That's the SMS line. You can send me a telegram if you like, either a voice note or a message, a, a text on 061 you can also tweet at HiFM if you like, or you can send a message on our Facebook page, which is 101.9 HiFM. My guest this morning is Dr. Lawrence Tablanche. He is the medical head of Sanofi Vaccines South Africa. We're talking about everything you want to know about vaccinations. It's really important that we know about it because then we make educated decisions rather than going off the hype and the nonsense that one finds on social media. Dr. Tablanche, why are there so many diseases that are preventable through vaccinations? And I'm talking about mumps, I'm talking about measles, I'm talking about whooping cough, I'm talking about chickenpox. These are all preventable if you get vaccinated. Why are we seeing a resurgence in them? So, so the answer to this question is, in my opinion, more of a logistical one. Unfortunately, we live in an imperfect world where we do our best to make sure everybody has access to vaccines. But unfortunately, vaccine coverage rates are not um, perfect and are not 100%. So in an ideal world, we would uh, like to see everybody vaccinated with the vaccines that are indicated for could convey the protection that is appropriate for for that person. And this is where we look at immunization schedule, for example. So so you may be well aware that um, in our country, for example, we have an immunization schedule that does include a lot of vaccines at set ages, which is intended to convey protection against a lot of these preventable diseases. So unfortunately, not every patient has the opportunity or or takes up the opportunity to be vaccinated against these diseases. Why is that? Why is that? I mean, not everybody... Look, when I see the people posting and saying 
you know, that they're not going to have the COVID-19 vaccination. These are the same people who, if their parents weren't born before them, wouldn't have had the polio, the measles, the mumps, rubella, or any of those others. I mean, that's the truth of it. You know, so really, whatever they have to say and whatever so-called, you know, pseudoscience they're bringing, you take it with a pinch of salt. Because if, you know, as a one or two-year-old, they wouldn't have had the vaccines either. I just don't understand the the mindset behind it. If we've had it, if the reason that you've never had mumps, the reason that you've never had measles is because you were vaccinated as a child, is that not proof enough that you should get vaccinated? Mm. Well, I mean, it's a difficult question to answer. One cannot uh, really uh, assume to understand uh, every individual's objection. But I, I think what comes to mind for me which is a very important point, is the power of knowledge and the power of education. And this is where, as a healthcare industry and every healthcare provider should take up the opportunity whenever they are presented with it to properly educate their patients or the people asking them for advice. Because it's important to make sure misinformation isn't paid more attention to than the the actual factual evidence um, and information. So from a from a healthcare industry and a pharmaceutical industry perspective uh, a strong focus for us as well is to uh, implement and develop educational drives um, it's not just about um, awareness of a certain intervention or a certain medicine or a certain vaccine it's also about awareness of diseases and the prevalence of these diseases what how what they look like what they cause what are the complications and um, in that context then frame the conversation and the understanding around the power of prevention and it ties back for me very strongly back to what i started with around our credo being we um, believe and want to help create a world where nobody needs to to suffer or experience a disease or pass away from a disease that is vaccine preventable because intervening with a vaccine to prevent a disease is often also easier than managing a disease or the complications of that disease. Yeah, and I'll tell you what you're saying is so profound. A friend of mine um, had a son who, he was completely vaccinated. um, He was 15 and contracted measles. It was just a very, very rare, it was an anomaly that he got measles in the first place because he was vaccinated, but uh, he actually passed away from it. And that was just, it, it happens, it happens. And it's just, to think that it's preventable is just, mm. that, that therein lies the tragedy. The tragedy. I want to get, just get to some of our listeners' questions. Unsigned says, Kathy, will there sometimes in the future be one jab for COVID like the annual flu jab? Well, there's a question. What do you say, Dr. Um, sure, it's a, it's a difficult one uh, that I'll have to check my crystal ball for. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we what we are seeing so far is basically what we can go on. And like with the, with the influenza um, virus and the influenza vaccine, as I explained the concept a bit earlier, um, the influenza virus has a capacity to um, evolve and change to the extent that it now is common practice and recommended practice to vaccinate with the updated influenza virus every year. So it's difficult to predict if the same 
um, scenario would happen with uh, coronavirus. Um, we we have seen, I mean, as we are all have, have all been a part of this pandemic, we have seen changes in different strains of the virus circulating. It's important to also remember that with each wave, that wave is not necessarily limited to the latest strain as well. We still see infections with strains from um, previous variants of the of the virus. So um, it's difficult to predict. Um, I think at this point in time, the focus should be around doing what we can and what we have at our disposal at this point in time. So that means um, if you have the opportunity and it is indicated for you to get either the COVID or the flu vaccine or both, then to, to definitely do that because there's different benefits from adhering to these kinds of treatment recommendations. Not only do you protect yourself from the flu vaccine or can protect yourself or help protect yourself from the flu if you get the flu vaccination. Similarly, if you have a COVID um, vaccination, you also improve your chances of being protected against COVID. And then very importantly, there is the very real possibility of being infected with both these viruses at the same time. So all the more reason to, to definitely consider having both vaccines at the same time even now. So as we saw in February this year, the Department of Health updated recommendation um, shifted from having previously recommended a two-week waiting period to now um, saying and recommending that um, you can get both vaccines at the same time. And you can imagine that from a logistical perspective, um, this really facilitates the uptake of both vaccines. And you asked the question earlier about what are some of the reasons that prevent people from getting a vaccine for a disease where there is a vaccine available for. So it's not only always about um, uh, well, there isn't a, an answer that fits every scenario, but we have to also look at some of the logistical things around it. So if you have to really have very frequent visits to get each and every vaccine separately, this can negatively impact the uptake or what we call vaccine coverage rates. So the fact that we can now get both the flu and the COVID vaccine at the same time is really a great benefit. And the opportunity to do that if you are presented with that should really be considered quite strongly. If you've got a question about vaccinations or vaccines, let us know. This is the guy to ask. His name is Dr. Lawrence Tablanche. He's the medical head at Sanofi Vaccines South Africa. He's got a CV as long as both my arms. And uh, he really, you're not going to, where else are you going to have access to him? We're not going to give you his mobile number to say, so that you can phone him up and say, so look, I didn't want to ask on air. No, you need to ask now. 34519 is the text line or 061-895-1019. This is the Discam Medical Monday. I'm Kathy Kayla. Send through your messages. Getting to some of the other messages. Oh, just before we move on to the other messages that are coming through, Dr. Toblanche, I learned last week that in order before you have your COVID vaccination, you should go for a rapid test. Is that correct? To make sure that you don't have um. the virus. You don't want to be... You don't want to receive the vaccination if you are currently incubating the virus. Is that correct? So a general approach with uh, vaccination is we say that if a patient is acutely ill, um, rather postpone the vaccination until the acute illness or the severe acute illness is, um, has passed. But 
to my knowledge and understanding, I'm not aware that there's a recommendation or a, a requirement to have a, a, a very recent PCR or, or COVID test um, to show that you are negative. Um, the yeah, so as far as I know, the the NICD, which is our National Institute of Communicable Diseases, um, do not have that kind of requirement. As I said, in a in an acute illness or a uh, phase, the recommendation for many different vaccines is to rather postpone until the acute component of the disease um, has passed. Would that be true of the flu vaccine as well? That you know, if you're feeling um, healthy, yes, you don't that's... don't go if you're feeling sick or you've got achy joints or you're not feeling well right so 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 similar recommendation in if you are acutely ill then rather postpone it um but there isn't it isn't an absolute contraindication as we would say so again each patient is different and each scenario needs to be weighed up differently the attending healthcare provider for a patient can ultimately help or make that call to a system based on having a that patient in the immediate setting taking their own comorbidities and history into account and then making a recommendation okay another message coming through from one of our listeners if one had the first pneumococcal vaccine in early 2020 and then the second wasn't available due, due to covid supply issues must one do both doses again or can one just have the second one that's a great question thank you so much for sending it through so I, I hate to disappoint, but unfortunately, the pneumococcal vaccine is not a, a vaccine that we produce at this point. So it would be um, out of line for me to to make a recommendation around uh, another company's vaccines. But again, my advice is to um, refer to a healthcare provider that's managing this patient's healthcare, and um, they can take into account the personal factors that would impact whether an initial vaccine needs to be repeated or um, whether the series can just be completed as is. Okay, so the pneumococcal vaccination is like what? That's like um, the Hib, Hepatitis B, HPV, uh, whooping cough and shingle vaccination no no so pneumococcal vaccine would be protective against a certain kind of bacteria which falls into uh then well is a, a pneumococcal bacteria so, oh, so okay yeah okay so i hope that you don't come into contact with any pneumococcal bacteria but uh, as dr blanche said just speak to your own your own healthcare provider let's have a look here nikki has sent through a message hi nikki nice to hear from you and all right, Nikki listening to us in Durban, she says, Hi, Kathy, is it recommended to have a second booster for the elderly with no comorbidities? What about elective surgery? Is it safe to have with the present surge of infection? And uh, thanks for an interesting program. That's from Nikki. Okay, so first question is, how many boosters does one need if you have comorbidities? And I think this is specific to COVID. Yeah, I'm assuming the questions around COVID. Again, unfortunately, these questions all come back down to an individualized assessment, which would have to be done based on a specific patient. The maybe a good point that is highlighted in this question is when we talk about certain diseases, like for example, flu again, there are certain patient groups that we need to prioritize um, based on their risk. So 
Uh, we can speak maybe a bit about that because it is a very important concept to take account of. When we speak about flu specifically, it is indicated for, for any healthy individual who would like to protect themselves against the, the risk of getting flu. But importantly, as I said, there are certain groups based on either their age or having other diseases that do put them at an increased risk. So when we speak about these risk groups and from an age component, we need to look at the extremes of age. So we generally say less than five years of age, the younger, the more at risk, or then elderly patients. So generally from about 65 years and older, patients do are more at risk of contracting influenza or flu, but also of more at risk of developing complications. With the flu vaccine, so apart- oh, sorry, sorry. No, no. I was just going to expand on some of the other risk groups. So when we speak about comorbidities, we we mean other diseases in the background, so yeah. especially cardiovascular things, so or lung, other lung diseases. But very importantly, a group that's often overlooked is also because when one so is we pregnant, didn't get that for um, some reason it, it cut out. You said uh, so I'm saying a group, an at-risk group that's often overlooked, is also the pregnant population. So it's very important to remember that normal physiological changes during pregnancy does mean, for example, you um, have some changes that not only may look like an infection, so therefore an infection may not be as easily diagnosed, but it also changes the way your immune system works. So per definition, it does put you at more of a risk of infection. So so these at-risk groups, extremes of ages with the very young, the very old, the sickly, meaning other comorbidities, um, for example, like diabetes I haven't mentioned, and then importantly, pregnant women. These are all at-risk groups that we need to to prioritize for flu vaccine. So, but beyond just looking at the at-risk groups, we also need to look at from an occupational exposure risk. Um, Healthcare providers are a very important target group for flu because even though in our own capacity, we might not personally be at risk. Yes, we might also be based on individual health risks, but because we are caring for patients, it's important that we are not the source of an infection like flu to a patient who may be particularly vulnerable. Therefore, it's very important to to prioritize healthcare providers for, for flu vaccination as well. So interesting. I mean I would I would have thought that pregnant pregnant women actually have a higher immunity, that that was one of the things that the body does during pregnancy is that it boosts your immunity. Is that not true? So I'm not obstetrician, but the what we see when we look at infection like flu and like COVID, we do see that in both those diseases, pregnant women are at risk. And we, we see this through a worse outcome of disease or even to an extent, a higher susceptibility to just getting the infection, regardless of what the infection course looks like. Then, So, so um, with that in mind, it's, it's definitely important from, uh, an immunological response component to not overlook this group. So to to my understanding and my knowledge, um, pregnancy does not boost the immune system. If anything, we need to to recognize what we see in terms of susceptibility for, for pregnant patients. And then again, make sure that education and proper awareness is being done to, to make sure this concept um, is properly understood. And therefore the the earnestness or the urgency 
with which we should vaccinate at-risk groups is, is approached adequately. How do we boost our natural immunity? Because, I mean, as you, as you were talking about the, about the healthcare workers, you know, I'm thinking surely the same principle would apply to healthcare workers that would apply to sending young children to school. When you send a toddler to nursery school, they come back for the first year, they come back with green noses because they're building their immunity, right? They're getting sick, they're catching anything and everything, but at the end of it, they're much stronger. And by the time they get to their second year of nursery school, they no longer have those revolting green noses. Is it not the same for healthcare workers that they because they are exposed to so much, even even a receptionist in a doctor's office, right? She's she's exposed to people who constantly have flu symptoms, different strains of flu. Surely they if they develop a natural immunity, they're going to have a stronger immunity. I understand where your question is coming from. I think from what I would recommend is a, a, perhaps a different angle of thinking about this is rather thinking about not putting yourself at undue risk. So uh, there isn't or the concept of boosting your immune system beyond what its natural function is, isn't um, really something um, I think that is generally well recognized that we can comment on in that sense. My thinking would rather be around um, when or in what scenario are you putting yourself at risk? Yes, there are certain occupational exposures, like you say, um, I think uh, something the pandemic has also taught us is the power of um, intervening in what we call non-pharmaceutical interventions. So what I mean by that, I mean things like hand washing, social distancing, mask wearing, proper sanitizing of equipment and shared surfaces and shared spaces. We have seen not only the power of how this intervenes in the spread of um, COVID, but we've seen it in other infectious diseases as well. So taking these principles into account from a hygiene perspective and then applying them in small activities of daily living um, does help reduce the risk you put yourself at. So for example, like you mentioned, a receptionist at a doctor's practice, if there's these non-pharmaceutical interventions are also implemented. Um, one can anticipate that this would have a positive impact on on the rate of infection or the rate of exposure. Again, all the more reason to implement or to practice these safe hygiene habits when you are an individual that is at risk. So having a, a comorbidity or another disease that because of that disease and the way it works puts you at a higher risk of infection or a higher risk for a complication from an infection. Another question coming through says, uh, is it advisable for one to have a COVID vaccine if there are side effects of the vaccine, if one suffers with heart palpitations or bad circulation product uh, problems? I know we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, the flu vaccine, but, you know, as a, as a medical expert, are you able to answer that? So, so the, the same concept applies. We need to weigh up individual factors and things. But um, maybe I can make an additional comment around whether when one considers having a vaccine for a specific disease and you start weighing up the side effects of that vaccine versus 
what are you weighing it up against? You need to consciously then look at, okay, if I'm concerned about the side effects that I may get from a COVID vaccine, let's look at what those side effects are from what we've seen in the clinical trials. And then let's compare that to what getting an active COVID infection looks like when you are unvaccinated, especially. And then for me as a scientist and as a clinician, that would be the argument that you need to weigh up for yourself. Um, let's bring it back to flu again. If I get the flu vaccine, do we see some local side effects from having an injection in your arm? Some people experience systemic side effects, so they may experience um, body aches or fever or headache for a day or two, but it passes. How do we compare that to uh, an influenza infection per se without the vaccine? That often looks like an extended period. So few days to over a week of having more severe symptom experience um, of that symptom spectrum. So, so those are the kinds of things one needs to weigh up. It's difficult to also, once again, predict these things. Not every patient gets side effects from vaccines. Um, there are some expected side effects, but again, comparing the severity of side effects from a vaccine versus the symptom experience of the actual disease infection is something that, again, where proper education and where the role of a healthcare provider comes in and explaining to a patient who has this kind of concern um, to help them weigh up the individual risks and benefits. Yeah, and I suppose like all things, you know, if you have comorbidities, your whoever's managing your health, whether it is your GP, whether it is your specialist, they're going to probably advise you to have to have the uh, to have the flu vaccination. Because I just want to shift to flu for a minute because it's it's very topical at this time of the year as we get closer to winter. In a normal, healthy person, at what age should we start considering flu vaccinations? Or is it only when we start getting older? So, um, no, we can uh, get, uh, children can also get the flu vaccine. And um, as we said earlier, all healthy individuals that want to protect themselves against a flu a flu infection are eligible to get the flu vaccine. So as much as we've spoken about now about the at-risk groups, it's important to remember that the flu vaccine is not a vaccine that is only limited to uh, to the at-risk groups, but essentially any patient from the age of six months old that uh, sure. is eligible for the vaccine if there are no other contraindications. Um, yeah, it should should get the vaccine to help protect themselves. Dr. Tablanche, who decides what strain of the flu is going to be put into a vaccination on an annual basis? And possibly regional? So the, so the WHO makes recommendations every year, twice a year, depending on the hemisphere and the flu season. So um, twice a year they make then these recommendations. And the inclusion of the strains are also different based on the hemisphere. So they'll make a recommendation for the northern hemisphere and then a recommendation for the southern hemisphere. And where do they get this input from or how do they make this decision? So they look at which flu viruses are circulating um, and then model essentially what are the most likely flu strains to be circulating in the next flu season. And then based on that recommendation, they they suggest which uh, strains should be included in the flu vaccine for a specific hemisphere. And then the, the companies who produce flu vaccines then base their flu vaccine on this recommendation. 
Dr. Lawrence Tablanche, it has been a pleasure interviewing you. Thank you very, very much for your time and for sharing your knowledge and your expertise with my listeners and I this morning. I wish you a safe week. Stay healthy. Thank you so much. Thank that you so is uh, Dr. Lawrence Tablanche. He is the medical head at Sanofi Vaccine South Africa. We've been talking about vaccinations, the types, the tech behind them. And uh, I thought that I'd just give you some interesting facts about vaccinations as I, as we get to the end of the Diskem Medical Monday. So in the past 60 years, vaccines helped eradicate one disease and they are close to eradicating another. So what was the one disease that they eradicated? It was smallpox, and they are close to eradicating polio. Isn't that fascinating? I thought that that was. Vaccines prevent more than 2.5 million deaths every year. Scientific studies and reviews continue to show no relationship between vaccines and autism. New and underlined vaccines could avert nearly 4 million deaths. Oh, I think this is old information. This is about 2015. Yeah, well, wasn't that something interesting? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Vaccines cause herd immunity, which means if the majority of people in a community have been vaccinated against a disease, an unvaccinated person is less likely to get sick because others are less likely to get sick and spread the disease. Well, I think we've all become experts in, in vaccinations, right? Uh, vaccines helped reduce measles deaths globally by 78% between 2000 and 2008. In sub-Saharan Africa, deaths dropped by 92% in the same period. There are existing vaccines that could stop rotavirus and pneumonia, two conditions that kill nearly 3 million children under the age of 5 every year. And uh, the CDC has reported a 99% reduction in the incidence of bacteria meningitis caused by, I can't even say this, this name of this bacteria, but uh, yeah, it's reported a 99% reduction in the incidence of bacterial meningitis since the introduction of the vaccination against the disease in 1998. And that, my friend, is Diskem Medical Monday for this Monday. I wish you a wonderful week. I wish you a safe week and I wish you a healthy week. God bless. Stay lacquer. I'll be back next Monday at 10 a.m. for Diskem Medical Monday.